You're listening to Goggler Presents, and have we got a great show for you today. We managed to score ourselves an exclusive interview with Oscar-nominated director Zach Heinzeling. He is, of course, the man responsible for Netflix's Dirty Money, featuring Najib Razak and 1MDB, and I got to go a little bit behind the scenes with him on how all of this came to be. Hello, my name is Zach Heinzeling, and I'm the director of The Man at the Top which is an episode of Dirty Money Season 2. All right, Zach, I have a ton of questions for you, but before we get into the episode itself and making it, just give me a little bit of an overview about Dirty Money, and I'm always curious as to that decision process behind which global scandals kind of make the cut for every season of Dirty Money. So I know you just directed this episode, but I was wondering if you had any insight on the whole process and the considerations behind it. So, yeah, I would say I'm, you know, less privy to the conversations that Alex is having, Alex Gibney is having with his staff about which episodes. They have been talking about doing this in season one, doing the 1MDB episode in season one. That would have been in uh, 2018 when that aired. They probably would have been working on it in 2017, but just not enough had sort of come out yet that the you know investigation just sort of just been announced that uh, obviously didn't have the election yet and they called me probably in March or April of last year and it was sort of the final episode of the season that they had been working out I think the fear is it's just such a giant subject matter to do it in an hour would be tricky you know the kleptocrats film you know, I felt was one piece of the story, a lot of it concerning sort of the, the journalist efforts of breaking the story, um, following and chasing it. And obviously the participation of the Wall Street Journal reporters, it sort of lacked a, a Malaysian perspective. To me, and this is, I guess this is sort of answering a different question, but there felt like there could be a story which was about what was happening in Malaysia right now as a result of this. So I sort of pitched that in response to them saying, you know, what do you think about 1MDB? You know, my initial reaction was, well, it seems like a lot has been done on that already, but if we could, you know, go to Malaysia and talk about the election and sort of what's happening politically and also actually try to see the victims of this, crime that are a lot of times invisible in financial crimes, then we could get something, you know, compelling emotionally and to get you invested in a story that for a lot of people is too complex and too concerned with dollars and cents. Well, let's go to Malaysia and see if we can find people on both sides of this story and see why there are people on both sides, you know, what the sort of going on amongst the, you know, the poorer class, the people that were affected most by this, but didn't necessarily know it. That was what we sort of set out to do. And as far as the other episodes, they had sort of been chosen already by the time I came on board. Ours, ours, I think, was the last to shoot. And I think that's because we were still kind of waiting to see what was unfolding. And I'll also say that was very much focused on filmmakers who wanted to make their own film. It wasn't a series that had the sort of formula or 
even you know stylistically or topically, Alex really wanted individual filmmakers to take ownership over the film and create something that could be very different from you know the episode that preceded it. I think that comes across uh, even from the first season because obviously each filmmaker has a very distinctive style. You know, Alex's episode on Volkswagen was very very different, say from the episode on Jared Kushner, for example. So I think that's very clear with Where Dirty Money Goes. You said get out to Malaysia and I guess talk to people and talk to people who otherwise haven't been spoken to. And and you did get that in the documentary. But I, I'm curious as to how crucial getting access to Najib was for you. At the beginning, it wasn't crucial. It wasn't like we want to make this film to be the sort of definitive voice of Najib. At the beginning, it was really more of an investigation of how far we could sort of get in Malaysia. I mean, actually, Dr. Mahathir had responded positively, you know, to an interview request. He was then the prime minister. And from there, we were able to sort of gain access to really anyone in the, you know, ruling government at the time. So at the beginning, it was not imperative to interview Najib. So, of course, we had started asking about that. You know, he had done, I think, only one other interview in the, that sort of infamous BBC interview in which he walked out. Um, after that, you know, really was refusing to talk to media really at all, especially on camera. So we thought our chances were, were pretty slim. Our initial, in our initial trip, you know, we spoke with his lawyer who whose son I think we had reached out to and we spoke and then finally we got a chance to interview his father and his lawyer and that was our sort of first, okay, this is the voice of Najib. You know, that interview was telling, but you couldn't necessarily get to the emotional side, you know, having a sense of, of you know, what he ultimately feels responsible for or doesn't feel responsible for. After that ABC interview, it was such a fiasco and he felt quite burned. And I can understand him not wanting yeah. to do anything else. But then I'm watching this documentary, your documentary, and I'm thinking he does realize the show is called Dirty Money, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. so what did you tell him or his people to convince him to go, sure, I'll talk to you guys? It was always a, a difficult thing to talk about because on every, you know, appearance release or materials release, the untitled Dirty Money documentary is, is there, you know, kind of waving a flag in everyone's face. Our initial contact was with uh, Yana, who's uh, Najib's daughter. I think, you know, obviously they are aware that these documentaries exist and i think the narrative among the international press has been heavily i guess against najib i would say um, yeah. certainly the kleptocrats you know the the you know the billion dollar whale i mean he comes out looking completely you know knowledgeable of, of the of what was going on and complicit to the crime and him being on trial sort of, I think, cemented in the, interna in the international you know, public's mind that, that he was guilty. But what was happening in Malaysia was different. 
right? What was happening in Malaysia is you had his popularity, and this is this is mid. 2019, mm-hmm. um, his popularity was actually increasing. It was. You know, he yeah. was going out on these tours and massive amounts of people were showing up. And so I feel like the initial interest was, hey, look at what's going on, rest of the world. Um, the you know, tide the story is turning. is not what it right? seems. The tide is turning. And so they, and when I say they, I mean Najib's family, you know, was interested in someone documenting that. Uh, someone documenting the fact that he, this this picture that the international public sees needs to be uh, colored in. If if you look around, you'll see that he's actually quite popular. His base is strong and is growing. He goes out and people you know support him and defend him. And no one knows about this outside of his supporters and conservative groups in Malaysia. And of course, you know, here in Netflix, they realize that the audience is going to be wide reaching. So here's an opportunity for them to show that Najib has popularity. And if they could just show that, I think that would be enough for them to at least make people think, well, why is he popular? If what he did was so clearly wrong and evil, then why does he have support. And I think just asking that question was sort of enough for, and I won't speak, you know, on behalf of Najib's family as to why, but I think that was the sort of kernel of it. And then we had a series of conversations about what we could film and we sort of landed on. We were there for a weekend when he was out touring parts of of Malaysia and having, you know, speeches. And then we had, you know, one sort of few hours designated on that weekend to do an interview. I think they felt, okay, here's a a side uh, that we feel like would be good for the public to see. And this would create a more balanced narrative to what is inevitably a very complicated story. And of course, they had seen, you know, other things that I had done and that Alex had done and felt like, you know, Alex's approach to film it the films is is balanced he's not looking to completely slander an individual that he suspects is is doing something he upholds the same journalistic integrity as, as what other people consider to be um, balanced uh, sources of, of media so i think you know they felt somewhat safe i think that sense of balance does come across because you speak to everyone i mean the guys who were fighting this case for the longest time you speak to najib and then you speak to the man on the street as well and I think this is one of those documentaries where I can't see the filmmaker's hand. And I'm, I'm assuming that was a straight up narrative choice on your part. Yeah, I think that's sort of typically the kind of filmmaking I'm more attracted to. You could contrast it to Alex's episode on Volkswagen where he's a character. Well, in that case, you know, he had had an experience that was relevant to the story. So he felt like putting himself as a character made sense. He's done other films, you know, where he's not a character. You know, for this film, me being an American, you know, with no real tangible connection to Malaysia uh, or to the story, it felt better that I should, to some extent, remove myself from, you know, the the film and, and not to have so much of a presence. I mean, you hear some of my questions in the audio. Typically, I think the director can kind of if it's not relevant, can distract an audience uh, in a way that could be, you know, more confusing uh, than helpful. 
So Zach, I'm curious as to why we hear about Rosma, but we don't actually hear from her. I mean, I think out of all of what I saw in the documentary, her voice not being there was a little conspicuous. And I'm curious whether that was because of a lack of access or whether it was yet again, another narrative choice on your part. Lack of access. I mean, they made it clear that, you know, they didn't want us to do a formal interview with her. She also has her own trial that's awaiting. So, you know, I think for legal reasons, they sort of wanted to concentrate on Najib's story and not have a potential situation where, you know, she's saying one thing and he's saying another. But for him to sort of, you know, be the defensive voice of this, particular film. There could be a scenario in which she's uh, a part of something else. You know, there was never any disagreement or hostility behind that. It was sort of just the family's decision to have him speak. You know, so she was around, but it's just that she didn't sort of want to formally speak on the subject uh, at that time. So it was, yeah, it was definitely a question of access. I mean, we would have loved to have heard her kind of defense of some of the allegations that that we made. Uh, she's obviously a massive subject in the film. I would have, you know, I think actually, in retrospect, it might have been better for them to have had her speak, to at least have some voice, just to have some other side. But it was their choice not to do that. So I, I've watched your episode about three times now. The things Najib says, he's repeated many times before, but it was interesting mm-hmm. watching him say it because we've never actually seen him say these things, even though we've heard them before. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong and whether you felt the same way about this, but I think for the most part, he still felt like he was going by a kind of guidebook set out by his lawyers on what he needs to say and what he needs to deny. But I yeah. think there was one moment where you managed to capture what I can only call self-reflection. When he goes, you make a thousand decisions every day and people judge you by the one or two bad decisions you make. That felt as genuine a moment, I think, as you could have gotten. Am I right? Did you feel the same way? Yeah, I do remember that point. And and at that point, he's referencing Jolo, which... I think publicly he, you know, obviously he has blamed Jolo for most, if not all of this, but for him to then say, well, you know, I made that decision to bring him in and that was a mistake was probably the only admittance of of wrongdoing that exists. I'm sure he would not consider that an admittance of wrongdoing if asked, but it did feel like a moment in the film where he at least felt responsible for something. You know, and I asked the question in so many different ways. Obviously, 1MDB was a failure and lost lots of money for the country. And this was your creation. Don't you feel responsible, at least for the sort of financial losses that happened as a result? And you would always find a way to sort of blame other people and say that, yes, it was unfortunate what happened. And yes, I do feel badly that we didn't make money faster, but he still claims that 1MDB, if given time, will, you know, recover all of its losses and make money. And he's he's completely... Oh, it's the gambler's problem, right? I'm going to win it in the next round. Yeah, he's still, still today convinced that 
you know, it was a good idea and that it can still make money. And that, of course, he blamed at the time, you know, when Mahathir was sitting as prime minister and, and Anwar seemed to be, you know, the next in line, it seemed obvious to him that this was all political and that they were sabotaging the game, the potential gains of 1MDB um, and not allowing, you know, 1MDB to flourish so that the public would blame Najib and oust him and keep his party away. So really no admittance, you know, that there were fundamental issues with the creation of, of 1MDB and certainly the hiring of the leadership and to say, look, I can't always, you know, have my eye on every signature, I think is passing, passing the buck. And I think the reason for naming the episode, the man at the top, he says, well, you can't always just blame the man at the top, but I think you can, because if there is someone who should be responsible for the sovereignty and the well-being and, and the economic well-being, you know, much less the moral well-being uh, of a country, you should take responsibility. And I think, to me, that was always the biggest blockage or issue I had was that he had a very difficult time admitting that anything went wrong. And that doesn't mean that it's admitting legal culpability, but I think I was trying to get him to think about it in a sort of a bigger picture, sort of do you regret certain things that happened? And I felt like he he never really got there with me. But the continual denial sometimes can, to me, look more guilty than someone who accepts some blame and has rationale behind it, but can talk about things that they could have done better. If you look back at all of his interviews, you know, you can sort of piece together things that seem like him saying he has some regrets, but his steadfast response is that, look, this would have gone better if it hadn't been politically assaulted. And if we had won the election, we would be fine and yada, yada, yada. The splicing between, I guess, the man on the street and the talking head interviews with those, I guess, involved in the investigation and journalists. Talk to me about that last bit when you kind of edit the fisherman singing that song, that, that, that dirge almost about the plight of the fisherman with someone like Claire talking about how what Najib did was unforgivable. I mean, when I watched Dirty Money the first time, for me, that came across as a kind of disconnect between, I guess, those people who are fighting for justice and the people who they were fighting for or on behalf of. And I think that became more and more apparent, especially given the politics of the day where Malaysians seem kind of fed up and where they would defend thievery if it meant they were getting some of it. Yeah. I mean, was your intent to show that kind of existing disconnect? Yeah, I think that it was entirely to show, you know, I mean, and the reason for using Claire, you know, I can see why a, a white British journalist voice could be construed as not the sort of best decision for a voice to be placed over you know, a Malaysian who is in 
sort of the worst possible scenario. Oh, but it made for great TV because that contrast was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason to use it was just because of, of what Claire, you know, the words that she was saying, which is that without even knowing that we were talking to poor fishermen, Claire, of course, mentions that there are these poor people out there who have no idea I shouldn't say no idea, but a confused idea about what is happening to them, that this person who they respect for reasons, who they've told me they respect for reasons of, well, he's a powerful leader, he has a good track record, the economy was good under him, and he gave me you know, cash handouts, and we believe in his religious politics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That, that they wouldn't necessarily see that now your country, you know, is potentially in massive amounts of debt for the next 30 to 40 years and its credit building is shot and un- unemployment has, has gone up. But that could be really what affects you potentially more and keeps your livelihood sort of the way it is and gives you less of an opportunity to take advantage of the welfare system and healthcare and education, you know, that might be afforded to you if, if this money hadn't been spent on boats and planes and paintings. I think in, it is entirely to show that people who are suffering the most not only don't necessarily know why they might be suffering, but are actually in support of, you know, the hand that's, that's feeding and biting them at the same time. I think it was important to also meet those fishermen and hear what they had to say and understand their situation and empathize with it and to not sort of just label them as people who are not sort of well-read enough to understand what's going on because they understand what's going on in their own way and they understand what's going on through their own perspective, which is informed. I think a lot of these people were... um, It's hard to, you know, place blame for not sort of understanding complicated global economics. And I think what I don't want is a situation where you're sort of, you know, labeling the underclass as not being educated enough to, you know, to understand bigger problems, but to just show what's going on and to show that they are supportive of Najib and to show that, that they are also, you know, feeling the impact of the economy being slow all at the same time. And for the audience to sort of, you know, paint their own picture of, of what they think is happening. I mean, to me, the most interesting part of the film is the fact that Najib, who was vilified and hung in effigy and ousted from power after 61 years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in this completely democratic populist effort is now becoming popular again, and even more so with what's going on currently with the coup. That is the most interesting part of this. But I think in our episode, just hinting at sort of what's going on with a a ruling class that has a shadowy authoritarian ties and, and a more uh, sort of dictatorial leadership style 
as becoming popular again as a, as a real sort of, you know, warning or, or a, an echo of what's going on in other parts of the world. And I think uh, that's really something to be learned uh, in this story. And that's the new aspect of our story that I think was not necessarily alluded to in, you know, previous uh, iterations of this story, which are plain and simple. Lots of money was stolen and was wasted. And look at, you know, these evildoers. And we can sit back as, as Westerners and sort of, you know, label them as crooks. But to really understand why do why do people like appreciate Najib? You know, why do they like his leadership style? And not to to blame them for it, but to sort of see the rationale behind it, I think is way more interesting and more telling for for what's happening and what will happen in, in the future. It's because of that singing voice, man. <laughs> I know. I mean, he is charismatic, and and I will say, like he, you know, really showed himself in a way that I think was brave of him, but I think he sort of understands, look, you know, people like me for who I am, and I'm not ashamed of that. His sort of public face with his supporters, you know, became a, a public face with, with, you know, more people around the world. And from what I hear, the Najib family is, you know, they certainly weren't mad about their portrayal in the film. You know, I haven't uh, gotten any negative feedback to, to, to feel like they were, you know, defamed or slandered. So that's the story. It's been a pleasure, Zach. That's been great. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking to Zach Heinzling. You can watch his episode of Dirty Money, The Man at the Top, featuring Najib Razak and 1MDB on Netflix. You can also find our review of the program on goggler.my, along with a bunch of other fun stuff to read. Go check it out. You've been listening to Goggler Presents. Thank you so much for tuning in.